you just by a show of hands get into conspiracy theories. Maybe you don't believe them, but you enjoy reading about them in some way. A few hands are popping up. I enjoy reading about some of these things. I don't believe that everyone that I read is true. I was reading some of them this week as I was preparing for this sermon, and these are some of my favorite ones that I came across. The first one I think most of us have at least heard of, but there's some conspiracy theories that man didn't really land on the moon, that it was faked, that it was some kind of production, but that we didn't really land on the moon. And that one I can somewhat see. I may not believe it, but I can see where people are coming from with it. The second one is that the earth is flat, and with all the technology and telescopes and spaceships we have, people still believe the earth is flat, and that one is starting to get a little more, I guess, harder for me to understand. The third one I came across is that birds aren't real, that birds are some kind of surveillance system from the U.S. government, and they're spying on us, and birds actually don't exist. So when it says in Genesis 1 that God created the birds... It really just means that he created drones to spy on our houses. And if birds aren't real, Alicia and I are in trouble because we've got a sparrow that's made her nest in our front door. So she's like really spying on us, I guess, through the front door. Uh, Number four, Area 51 is holding aliens from outer space. And I, I know quite a few people who I think, yeah, there's some nodding heads. There's quite a few people who I think might believe that that's true. But the fifth one is my favorite one, and that is that the U.S. government is ran by reptiles, that it's not actually people. Now, metaphorically, could some people say that that's true? Possibly, but uh, I don't think they're actually reptiles that are running the U.S. government. And some of these theories have more merit than others, but what makes it a conspiracy theory that I would say the majority of the public opinion doesn't believe that it's true. But there's some who would hold to these theories, and some of them have bigger followings than others. And we see this word conspiracy later on in our passage. And what's happening is there's a secret revolt, or I guess not revolt, but a secret group formed against the Apostle Paul that's going to try to take his life. But on the outside, they're trying to make everything look like it's normal. They're trying to call Paul to a meeting. They're trying to say, hey, we just want to get more information from this guy. But the intention of it is really to try and take his life. And so in Acts chapter 23, which will be the majority of our time spent on today, we're going to get an inside look into this conspiracy against the Apostle Paul, how it came about, and then how God works through these details to further his ministry. And as we're looking at this, we really get a look into the care that God has for us. God cares for us. Sometimes in life, we don't always feel like God cares for us. Sometimes when things get hard or when life doesn't go our way, we can forget about God's care and his love for us, but that doesn't mean that those things aren't true. You can probably think of times in your life where you've thought that God seems distant or he doesn't seem to be caring for you like maybe he used to. Some people attribute that to sin. They think that maybe God has brought these trials into their life because of their own Sin, but we know from Scripture that trials are part of how God works in our Christian life to help us become more like Him. So you could say that even suffering and trials in the Christian life are evidence that God cares for us. Despite whatever we might believe about God in the hard times and in the trials that we have, we can trust Him. 
We can know that God has a plan and it's working together for good, like Romans 8.28 says. It may not be the good that we have in mind, but we're not God. We're not working according to his plan. So what I want us to see this morning as we look through this chapter is that we should remember God's care as we represent him. And what we'll see as we get into the later parts of this chapter is that Paul has another moment where I think he's starting to question and maybe doubt the care of God. And God comforts Paul in a really unique way. And so for us, we can remember God's care as we try to represent him well. Let's look at the last verse of Acts 22, verse 30. And I want us to first of all see a confused counsel. Confused counsel. And we'll look at this last verse. It says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before him. So like Keith said, we ended our sermon last week in a little bit of chaos with Paul. The tribune is just trying to figure out what is going on with this guy. There is a huge mob trying to throw Paul out of the temple, even trying to take his life. The tribune is called onto the scene. Last week, he, Paul tells this man of great importance. Remember, he was in charge of a thousand soldiers. So he's a man of pretty high importance in the Roman army. He says, hey, I know Greek. I am a Jewish person. If you'll just let me talk to these people. And we see Paul give this long speech to the Jewish mob and most of the speech goes pretty well. They're listening to Paul. They're trying to process what he says until he says that he's trying to evangelize to the Gentiles. And then right when Paul says that, they're back to trying to kill him. They're throwing their garments up. They're kicking dust off of their garments. And they're trying to kill Paul again. So we pick up in verse 30. And this tribune is just really trying to get to the bottom of what is going on. He's really trying to understand what is happening. And so he unbinds Paul. Now that is important that it says Paul is not bound during this time. Remember last week we discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen. Right as Paul's about to be whipped, he says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You might not want to do that. And they panic and they unbind him because it was illegal to even arrest a Roman citizen without cause, let alone to beat him or flog him. And so they bring him to this council, the Sanhedrin is what they're called, and Paul is going to make his case before them. And so that's where we pick up going into chapter 23. Now one question that we have going into this is, could the tribune really call this council to meet? Remember, he wasn't a Jewish man, and they, Romans didn't have that kind of authority to instruct the religious Jewish leaders to meet. And I would just say this, that maybe he didn't have the authority to do that, but if he wanted them to meet and get to the bottom of this, they were going to fall in line and do that because of the authority this man had. I also think that this council wanted a chance to get to talk to Paul and see what was going on. And so this council, the Sanhedrin, it was made up of the high priest, who, as we'll see, he's a very interesting character, and then Pharisees and Sadducees and different priests. This was the most important council in the Jewish religious system. So in verse 1, it says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God, all in good conscience, up to this day. This is one of several times in the book of Acts 
where it says that Paul looked intently at someone. And every time it's right before he's about to give a powerful testimony. Now, I don't know what this look really looked like or if it was a certain facial expression he made, but I think it shows the seriousness and the determination that Paul is using as he makes his argument. And he starts by saying, look, I've lived my life before God in good conscience. I've not done anything wrong. And this is important for these people to understand. Paul is not ashamed of his life. Now, before his salvation, I think Paul had a lot of things he was ashamed of or that really troubled him to think about. And you can see that throughout scripture. But after salvation, Paul says he's not ashamed. He has lived his life in good conscience. And he's trying to show just the blamelessness that he has before this council. It reminds me of what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I've lived my life blamelessly before God. And look at the last part of that verse in Romans. He said, it's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first, but also the Greek. What was really going on in this trial with Paul? They weren't just mad that he was preaching the gospel. They were upset that he was preaching the gospel to Gentiles and that God's plan of salvation didn't just include the Jews, but that it included others as well. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel and I'm not ashamed of the gospel that goes out to all these different people. And do you realize this morning that the gospel doesn't just go to people who look like you and me, but that God says, even in Revelation, he's building a kingdom of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The worship that we are going to see in heaven is going to be multi-ethnic. It's not just going to be people who look like you and I do. And so Paul's even getting at that here, I believe, as he's making his defense. So Paul says this, he says, I'm blameless. And the high priest does something interesting in verse 2. Look with me. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Now, why did he do this? And by the way, this word strike, it's not just like a slap, but it's like punching someone in the face. It was a strong rebuke. And you would do this if someone was blaspheming God or you were saying something very controversial, I guess, or saying something that wasn't true. You have to understand a little bit about this high priest in order to understand why he would say this. The high priest that was around or that was in charge when Christ was put on the cross, when he was tried and killed and then rose again, was named Caiaphas. This was not Ananias. Ananias came after Caiaphas was high priest, and he had an interesting reputation. He was known for bribery, and he was known for different uh, just promiscuity. He was also known for losing his temper as well. And so he has an interesting background. He was also known for being pro-Roman. He wasn't just supporting of Jewish, but he was a supporter of Roman rule as well. He remained in power until A.D. 58 and 59, and eventually he was assassinated by Jewish people in A.D. 66. So even the Jewish people really didn't like this high priest. And so he orders Paul to be hit on the mouth, to be struck, to be punched in the face. 
And as Paul receives this in verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you not going to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Now, I just want to say that what Paul says here is very debated by Bible scholars. And this is what I mean by this. A lot of people think that Paul sins in verse 3 with what he says. Now, when I first read this, I thought, I don't know how you could think Paul sinned. He literally was punched in the face and is just responding back to this guy who ordered them to do this. But many people would say that Paul lost his temper here and should not have addressed the high priest this way. If you look at verse 4, it says, Those who stood by says, Would you revile God's high priest? And in verse 5, Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you, not, you shall not speak evil of ruler of your people. So we have to answer the question, is what Paul did sinful? And I would say that perhaps Paul lost his temper, but I don't necessarily think what he did was wrong. We have to understand, why does he say he did not know he was the high priest? Some people would say that Paul just hadn't been around Jerusalem He'd been traveling for 20-some years, so he really just didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. Some would say that perhaps he couldn't see that it was the high priest speaking. Many think that Paul had some kind of eyesight blindness type thing, and so he really couldn't physically see Ananias in front of him. Some think because of how many people were there, Ananias was possibly in the back, and so he couldn't see who it was that ordered Paul to be struck But I would prefer another interpretation that says perhaps Paul is speaking with a bit of irony here. Maybe he knew that it was Ananias who's the high priest. And I think we see that in verse 3 with what Paul says to him. But he's saying that he's not acting like a high priest should act. Perhaps he's saying, I didn't realize it was a high priest because I wouldn't think a high priest would act in this way. And then he quotes why they would tell him not to do this. You shall not speak evil of ruler of your people. And I really think we need to get down to what does Paul actually say in verse 3. He says, God is going to strike you. So Paul was ordered to be struck. He says, by the way, God is going to strike you down. And that is true. Ananias would be struck down by God. He'd be assassinated several years later. And then he calls him a whitewashed wall. Now this wasn't just some kind of Jewish name calling or insult. This was a very serious accusation or insult that Paul would give to Ananias. If you think you've heard this before, something like this, you probably have when Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Now to cover something in white means to try to purify it and make it look nice. If you were to call someone a whitewashed tomb, you would say that on the outside you look nice. On the inside, you're dead. You're not living. So that's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees. On the outside, you look great. On the inside, you don't have hearts that are alive and responsive to God. So how does what Paul say compare to that? Well, he calls him a wall, but this isn't a wall like you would want to have inside of your house. You know, the walls support the structure, protect you. What he's saying is you're on the outside, you're a decorated wall, you're whitewashed, you are supposed to support something, but on the inside you are breaking down. You're not a good structure. And so this is what Paul tells him. He says, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. 
And this is why I think Paul knows that this is Ananias, because it was the high priest's job of anyone else to know what the law said. And he says, you are telling me that I'm not obeying the law, yet you are disobeying the law by having me struck. And if you know about Ananias' life, as I mentioned earlier, he really didn't live according to the law of God. So whatever your belief is, it's not maybe as important as just the fact that this exchange happens. And this is a little bit of a rocky road to start Paul's defense before the council. But Paul notices something in verse 6. And he's very perceptive in what he does because I think he's starting to realize that he's not going to get a fair trial from this Jewish council. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisees, and it is respect to the hope and the the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Why does he point out this difference between Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not like each other. They were really enemies within the Jewish religious system. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in angels. And the Sadducees really didn't believe in any of that. You might ask, why is that? They only thought the first five books of the Bible were the inspired word of God. So everything past Deuteronomy, the Sadducees did not believe were God's inspired word, but maybe just extra. And so you don't see anything past that about the resurrection of the dead, like you'll see later in the Minor Prophets. So they did not believe that. We'll get an explanation of those things later. So Paul starts to perceive there's some tension between these two different people And so he's going to try to play into that tension and get himself out of this situation. He starts making this trial, not about what he was accused of, but about the resurrection of the dead. He says, hey, I'm a Pharisee, and we know that's true. Paul grew up as a Pharisee. His father and probably grandfather were Pharisees as well, or at least he was from that family. And he says, the real reason I'm here is because of the resurrection of the dead, probably referring to Christ. And when he says this, This strikes up that tension. Look at verse 7. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So there's a sharp contrast here. You're really starting to split the jury. Verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So that's where Luke is explaining to the reader, Theophilus, who is a Gentile, he says, by the way, this is the background. The Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural, but the Pharisees did. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So the Pharisees say, hey, we think this guy might be telling the truth. Maybe he shouldn't be on trial. He does believe in the resurrection. Now notice that they don't attribute this resurrection to Christ. They don't say that it's Christ's resurrection from the dead. They said maybe it was a spirit or maybe an angel that spoke to him. So they're not accepting the gospel. They're not making some kind of gospel proclamation. But they're trying to support their view of the supernatural. 
So the Pharisees are kind of backing Paul, and I think Paul knew that this would happen. And in verse 10, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and be brought into the barracks. So we see how violent this was. Now, lately, I've been listening to some legal fiction drama on Audible, some different lawyer-type books. And one thing that I really didn't know about until I started reading these books was how important it was during jury selection. Now, we all get the jury duty notice, and we kind of shrug, and we don't want to have to go in for jury duty. My grandma is like the queen of going in for jury duty. She's been selected I don't know how many times. She's been on several trials, including some high-profile murder trials. I don't know what it is about her that makes her so, I guess, prone to being on these trials, but they just really like my grandma there. So she's been to jury duty several times. And when I talk to her about it, she talks about how they'll ask for her background, her uh, profession, what she did. She was a nurse. And then some questions that would maybe make her bias towards one side or the other. Now, the judge doesn't want anybody to be biased. He wants 12 jurors who are all the same, who don't have any biases. But the prosecution and the defense want the jury to be biased towards their side. So whatever the case has going on in it, whether it's some kind of tax evasion or homeowner fraud or even a murder trial, they're trying to pick jurors that are more favorable towards their side. And they can do that by getting rid of jurors that they don't think would like what their case was going to be about. So I don't know what it is about my grandma that makes her so susceptible to that, but she's been part of these different cases. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's starting to sense what the jury would be about. He's starting to understand, I can play into some tension that's already there between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as Paul is doing this, the tribune realizes that this is chaos. Now, if I was the tribune, I would be pretty done trying to figure out this Paul guy. Because every time Paul is trying to defend himself, some kind of mob breaks out and Paul is almost killed. So he sees that Paul has started all this and that he's almost going to be killed because of it. And in verse 10, he's drugged out of there and taken back to the barracks. Now we get to verse 11. And it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him. We don't have the background to this, so I don't want to take this too far. But this is similar to what we saw in Acts chapter 18 when Paul was in Corinth. And we see the Lord Jesus speak to Paul and encourage him. Look at what he says. Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So also you must testify in Rome. So Jesus encourages Paul. We don't know why he was afraid. Maybe it's because every time he tries to defend himself, he's almost killed. That would make me a little anxious as well. Maybe he's not anxious for his life, but maybe he's starting to wonder, am I ever going to get to Rome? Remember, this was Paul's plan. He didn't want to just go to Jerusalem. He wanted to get to Rome as well. So maybe Paul's starting to think, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of this city. And Jesus tells him to take courage. And he says, you've been a good witness. You've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. We saw that last week. He says, so you must testify in Rome. Now, we've known that this was Paul's plan. 
Now we see that it's also God's plan for Paul to go to Rome. And I think Paul might start to get an understanding of what it's going to take. We know, because we can read the end of Acts, that Paul gets to Rome, but he gets there as a prisoner. And he spends two years there sharing the gospel under house arrest. And Christ encourages him that maybe things wouldn't work out according to Paul's plan, but that God would have him go to Rome. So we see as Paul's life is starting to unravel, God comforts him and cares for him in the situation. And I think this is very encouraging. Sometimes we see Paul throughout the book of Acts in his letters, and he's such a bold, forceful person. And you think, well, Paul never had times where he doubted. He never had times where he was afraid. And I don't think that's true. I think there were times in Paul's life where he needed encouragement. And this may be one of those times. Paul was human and he had doubts and fears and shortcomings, And he needed encouragement just like we do as well. When we start to wonder if God is caring for us, there's several promises in scripture we can remember. Christ says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So when you're worn down, you feel like life is too much for you, you can go to Christ and he gives you rest. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Paul says later in Philippians, as we bring our anxiety and our cares to God, as we pray for them, he says, in the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. So when we have anxiety, we shouldn't dwell on those things. We should pray and ask God for help in them, and he gives us peace. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men freely. So when we wonder and we say, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, or I don't feel like I have the wisdom to know what to do, we can ask God for wisdom that he'll give us. I mentioned Romans 8.28 earlier, but we know that God works all things together for good. It may not be the good that we want or that we think should happen, but we can trust that God has a plan and everything is working according to his plan. And then in Philippians 4.13, God gives us contentment. Paul says, I've learned to be content in every situation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we can trust that despite the circumstances of our life, God's plan is still holding steady. He still cares for us. Let's look secondly at a committed conspiracy. So we've looked at this confused council and this chaos that erupts. Now let's look at a committed conspiracy. We'll start in verse 12. And when it was day, so the next day after this, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. So they take this vow, they make this promise that I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink until Paul is dead. Now this oath was significant. If they broke this, or if they didn't do this, there would be a curse upon them and their family. Now you might say, what happened if Paul got moved and they weren't able to kill him? Well, they would be not under oath anymore, but they would still have the curse. So they would eat and drink. They weren't just going to starve to death, but there would be a curse upon them for not 
carrying this out. So they come together, they make this conspiracy, and they say, we've got to kill this guy. We're going to fast until he is dead. And in verse 13, we see that it's a large conspiracy. It says there were 40 people who made, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So these people bind together, but it wasn't the high priest and it wasn't people who seemed to be part of the Sanhedrin. Maybe it's people who were watching, people who heard about what was going on with Paul. Whatever the case is, they are ready to wipe Paul from the face of the earth. So in verse 14, it says, They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. So they go to the authorities there. They tell them what they've done. And now we start to see the Sanhedrin get involved in this and take part in this plan to try to kill Paul. In verse 15, Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him when he comes near. So the idea is that they're going to ambush Paul. Paul was in this fortress of Antonia. It was like a quarter mile from where the Sanhedrin met. So the Jewish council would say, hey, let's get Paul back. Let's try to question him. Let's get to the bottom of this, which we know is what the tribune wanted. I think at this point, that's all he wants is to just get to the bottom of this ordeal with Paul. And so he would bring Paul back over to the Sanhedrin. And on the way, these 40 people would try to ambush them and kill Paul. Now, some of the Roman soldiers would be killed as well, but I don't think the Jews care at this point. They're just trying to take out Paul by whatever means are necessary. So they are really committed to this plan, this conspiracy to try to kill Paul. But on the outside, they're just trying to make it look like they want to get answers about his case. And all of this is according to their plan. And maybe they even thought this is what God wanted them to do. This is not how God wanted things to happen. So look at verse 16. God intervenes in a pretty unique way. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, so his nephew, heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So Paul's nephew was there. We don't quite know how he heard about this. Maybe he was part of the Sanhedrin. Maybe he was a Pharisee. Maybe he just overheard them talking about this. Whatever the case is, we find out a little bit about Paul's family. And if you notice from Scripture, you don't read too much about his family besides the fact that they lived in Tarsus. Perhaps they all moved to Jerusalem. Maybe just his sister's family. Maybe just his nephew were in Jerusalem during this time. Whatever the case is, he goes and tells his uncle, Paul, what is going on. Now, Paul, in verse 17, says, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he doesn't tell the centurion right then what is happening. And I think Paul's trying to distance himself, maybe, from telling them this. He's trying to show that, hey, this didn't come from me. This came from my nephew. I want him to go tell the tribune what he has heard. And so the centurion brings him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. So this person comes to the tribune. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow 
as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about them. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush, who have bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So he tells them this plan, that these people are lying in wait to try to kill Paul, that some of the Roman soldiers would be killed as well if they were trying to protect Paul. They were going to stop at nothing to try to attack and even kill Paul on this trip. So the tribune hears this, and in verse 22 it says, So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now these Jewish people were very committed to their plan to kill Paul. I don't know about you, there's not a lot of things I would give up eating food and drinking water for until it was done. Now there have been some times where I've had to finish something, a paper or a project, so I've locked myself in my office and I've said I'm not going to get up until I get this done. Usually when I say that, somebody calls me or somebody comes to the door and I've got to go help them with something. But they were very serious, and I think they thought this is what God wanted them to do. But they're missing the point. They're missing the fact that the will of God was not just what they wanted to see happen, but that God was working through Paul to bring salvation to the Gentiles. It should remind us, That God, as we think about what is God's will for our lives, he doesn't call us on the phone and tell us what his will is. He doesn't always give us some kind of funny feeling. But God tells us his will through his word. These Jewish people were committed. They were intent on trying to see what they thought God's will was done. But they really didn't understand what God's word says. Jesus points this out time and time again about the Jewish people. He says, you're reading the same Bible that I am. You can read all these prophecies about the Messiah coming, but they missed them. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Christ has a pretty strong rebuke of the people who have seen his miracles because he says, you've read scripture, you've seen the miracles that I've done, you should understand that I am the Messiah And yet you still reject me. It's just a reminder that God speaks to us through his word. And so as we see these plans of the Jewish people, what they thought was God's will, trying to come to fruition, we know that God intervenes by using a young man who is Paul's nephew to spare Paul and save his life and to work out what is best for Paul. So let's see how God finally protects Paul in the last 12 verses. We see God's divine care. How would the tribune respond to this situation? You might think there's part of this tribune that says, hey, let them get rid of Paul. He's been so much trouble for me during this whole time. But we know Paul's a Roman citizen. He can't really do that. So how would he protect Paul? In verse 23, the tribune calls two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So this was a lot of soldiers. I think the total number was about 470 soldiers that would be going with Paul on this journey. They'd go at night 
It would be about 9 o'clock at night when they would take off to go to Caesarea. Even though Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, the Roman seat in Israel was Caesarea. It's named after Caesar himself. And this is where Felix lived. He was the governor of Judea. And we'll say a little bit about him in a moment. Verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So Paul would have his own horse. And some people think maybe it wasn't a horse, but a donkey or a mule. But they wanted him to have some kind of mobility so that if they were attacked, he could get away and he could get away from the ambush that was coming. So this is like the ultimate protection that is given to Paul. They're going at night. There was really nothing this ambush could do to kill Paul. And with Paul is sent a letter. We're told what this letter says in verse 26. Claudius Lysus, that's the name of the tribune. We finally see what his name is. To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned he was a Roman citizen. Now stop right there for a moment. Is that really what happened with the tribune? He says, hey, they were just, Paul was talking to these people, and I found out he was a Roman citizen, so when they were going to kill him, I went and saved Paul. That's not really what happened. Actually, they were going to beat Paul themselves, maybe even to death, and then Paul says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, you might not want to do that. And then they take Paul and they unbound him. So he's starting to twist some of the facts in this letter to make himself look better. But the rest of the letter is pretty accurate. It says in verse 28, And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So what he says here is interesting. Perhaps Paul was guilty according to their law. Maybe he did bring Gentiles into the temple. But he says there's nothing that we need to do as Romans that would require us to kill Paul or even imprison him. Verse 30, And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So he reveals to Felix there's this plot against Paul. His life was in danger if he stayed in Jerusalem. So he sends Paul to them, and then he hints at the fact that the accusers would have to come and make their case against Paul. Paul would have to stand trial before those who accused him. We'll see that happen in next week's sermon. Verse 31, So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. This was right next to Caesarea, about seven miles away. Verse 32, And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So the next day they don't have quite as many people guarding Paul, but the danger wasn't as severe when they were next to Caesarea. Verse 33, When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from and learned that he was from Cilicia. Now, why is this important that they figure out what province Paul was from? Felix is trying to understand if he has jurisdiction, if he could really try Paul or if they needed to move him somewhere else for another governor to have this trial. 
But what he finds out is that Sicilia was part of Felix's domain, so he did have the authority to try Paul. Verse 35, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So that's where we come to an end of Paul's journey in Jerusalem. He's not going to go back to Jerusalem for the remainder of the book of Acts. Now he's going to Caesarea. And God saves Paul's life. He spares him. He sends him to Caesarea. And I don't think it was just because God was concerned with his physical safety. We know later on, Paul does give his life as a martyr for the gospel. But it's because God had more work for Paul to do. Paul would still testify there in Caesarea and then later on in Rome. Do you realize that most of the books that Paul wrote in the New Testament come when he's in prison? Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, First and Second Timothy, Titus. All those books come when Paul is imprisoned. So maybe things weren't working like Paul thought they would, according to Paul's plan. But we know that in God's ultimate plan for his church, Paul is taken to Caesarea. He would stand trial there. And he's going to get the opportunity to share the gospel on a pretty national stage. So we're reminded of God's care. And in some ways it seems strange. We know that God cares for Paul even through trials. Sometimes God allows trials in our life. And there are some that we may not understand the purpose of them until we're in heaven. There's some things that happen. There's some things that maybe have happened in your life that you can tell me about. And I might just say, I don't know why God allowed that to happen. But it does not negate the goodness of God. It doesn't mean that God's plan failed. It doesn't mean that God's will is not accomplished. God allows trials in our lives for his good, for his will, and so that we can grow in Christ as well. In James chapter 1, it talks about how the testing of our faith produces patience so that we may be perfect and complete so that we can grow in Christ and become more mature. We see this even working in Paul's life. Paul often will go back to the trials he faced, the imprisonment, the beatings, all the tribulation he faced as a witness of Christ and how God used those in his life for the furtherance of the gospel is so that Paul could grow in Christ. So as we close this morning, I want to ask us two final questions. First of all, are you following God's will? Are you following God's will? How do we know God's will? I would say start by reading his word. There are some gray areas in life. There's some questions that we have. What would God have me do in this situation? Maybe the Bible doesn't say I should buy this car or purchase this house. But we can understand what God's will is for our life from his word. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. A major part of God's will is that we grow and we become more like Christ. I think God is doing this in Paul's life, even through his trials. So are you following God's will this morning? Do you read his word to understand what his will is? Do you pray and ask God that his will would be done? When Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We know that God will accomplish his will on earth. And are we anxious for that this morning? Secondly, do you remember God's care for you? When life gets hard, when trials happen, do you take time to say, I don't know why this is going on, but I know that it's part of God's plan. Sometimes we can complain about it. Sometimes we can despair. Sometimes we can even question, is God truly good? We know that the answer is yes. God is always good. He's always working things in our life for his good and for our benefit as well. So do you remember God's care for you? Sometimes the best testimonies that we can give other people are times in our lives where we had trials and we faced suffering and we remembered God's goodness. And we can see how those things played out later on. There may be some things that happen to us in life that we never truly understand. We can always remember that God cares for us and that he's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness in our lives. We thank you for your care. We ask that you would just help us to remember those things even when we're hurting. We know these things aren't easy to take in, to comprehend. We ask that you would give us grace and strength for those times. Help us to be a good testimony. Help us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.